HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, exploring the issues of relevance to young farmers, starting new businesses in the new economy, uh, despite the old. And today I'm really thrilled to introduce Michael Schumann, who is an economist, attorney, author, entrepreneur. He's been an institution maker um, for many years, writing and designing institutions to support the growth of a local economy. And he's here today to talk with us about some of the instruments and approaches to take as we seek to capitalize our new beginning local businesses um, in the context of a global economy that misunderstands and undervalues us. Thank you, Michael, for joining. Great to be with you. So, as I'm mentioning, um, this is a this is a community that you're speaking to as a young farmer community, and I thought maybe it would be um, good to just introduce a little bit the work that you've been pursuing lately and how it is a relevance to us. Sure. Well, um, the last book um, that I published, which was two years ago, called Local Dollars, Local Sense, was all about an emerging local investment revolution, which I see as sort of working hand-in-hand with the local food revolution. Um, And one of the reasons why I wrote the book is that after, you know, earlier pieces of work that I did with local economies and go around the country and speak with many, many groups, the consistent feedback that I got was, you know, we, we know how to create local enterprise. We know where it belongs. You know, we can move very far, but we don't have the money to implement these businesses. We don't have the capital. And I became very interested in what were the ways that people, you know, in communities were beginning to crack down the walls that separated good local businesses from from capital. So, so that's, 
I guess one one thing that I've been doing that very much ties in with the needs of young farmers, because I think at the end of the day, young farmers need ways of accessing land and accessing uh, equipment and accessing um, various streams of money in order to, you know, front-end invest on on certain things before they can bring their crops to market. So, So there's a lot of concern, I think, that that people in sort of the local food movement have about how we can really bring a lot more capital to bear. So, so far we're in. I mean, this is exactly what's needed. So many um, of my colleagues in the Young Farmers Movement are struggling to figure out um, how to interact with local banks and with um, slow money investors and others who are interested to put capital towards fifty thousand, you know, for a barn or a processing facility or a kitchen or or a a shed or a kitchen or a sales area or or packaging, all those kinds of things, and um, struggling to invent that and negotiate that while also running a business. Um, right. What are what are some tools that you have been working on? Well, I think the 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 most fundamental shift that we all need to make in our thinking is who we turn to for investment. Um, and and it's useful to pause for a second and sort of just describe the lay of the land legally, because back in the 1930s, um, the United States implemented, as did a bunch of other countries. Um, a system of laws called securities laws. And I call these laws investment apartheid because they really set up a kind of a two-class system. If you're very wealthy, literally in the top 1% of wealth holders or income earners, you're allowed to invest in anybody, anytime, no questions asked. If you're in the other 99%, you may only invest a penny in uh, a a local business or a a farm if that business has done an enormous amount of legal work, which could easily cost $25,000, and very few businesses ever want to do that. So to kind of go back to where you started from, which is, all right, so let's say I am a newcomer farmer, uh, I want to either put down some money to buy a farm or to lease a farm. Um, where am I going to get that money from? Well, if it's a big chunk of money, uh, maybe I'll turn to a bank. But a bank, you know, banks are very, very conservative animals. They they often do not lend to young people, people without a lot of credit history. Um, and if you were borrowing that money, say, to advance on payments on, uh, say, uh, inputs into production, uh, seeds and the like, that would be sort of working capital, and they would not want you to put money into working capital because that is too risky. So banks often are not a good place to go. So where you might go instead would be the 1%, the accredited investor, um, and it is true that there is a tiny, tiny number of accredited investors who are interested in this. And 
thank goodness for Woody Tash and Slow Money creating a movement of accredited investors largely who are interested in supporting local food businesses and, and you know, early-stage farmers. And so, so there's a little bit more of that than there was before. But at the end of the day, the most important source of funding for us to turn to is friends, neighbors, contacts, fans, and almost all these people are going to be unaccredited. So thinking about ways that we can, in a sense, crowdfund, and crowdfund has many different meetings, but I'll just mean it in the sort of abstract sense of many people putting small amounts of money in. But I think crowdfunding our farms, crowdfunding equipment, and in a way CSAs have done this for years. I mean, CSAs are a form of people crowdfunding through pre-purchasing uh, via a subscription of, of, of baskets of food, um, and we just need to sort of build on those concepts. This is really interesting to me because I'm actually sitting here um, in a co-working space in Oakland with a little phone booth, and um, we are having our first strategy session with the Sustainable Economies Law Center, who I know is a partner in the cutting-edge capital um, community investment model that you were working on. And we're talking about agrarian trust, and we're talking about community ownership of land in a broader, in a broader sense than just community ownership over one particular farm, but of creating a farmland commons. Um, which is kind of like group-owned by um, a big pool of investors or land gifters or bequests. Um, and that essentially you'd have land which is owned by many people and an investment mechanism which would take the money of those many people and administrate and, and oversee governance of that land, which would then no longer be bought and sold every generation, incurring... Um, all the taxation problems and drama of those intergenerational transfers. So this is very germane to the project that I'm, I'm super focused on right now, and I wonder if you could, just listening to that um, dilemma, offer some general principles of, of how, how to conceptualize and, and make, make, make that form live. Right. So... so a uh, couple of different things to say. So first of all, I think the general concept here of getting a lot of people to invest in a parcel of land and thereby lowering the threshold uh, that, that otherwise would stand in the way of a, of a farmer setting up and doing business absolutely needs to be done. And we should be putting more and more of our land in community control because at the end of the day that's that's the best way of protecting farmland the best way of protecting green spaces even if you're interested in downtown development getting a community to invest in downtown parcels of land helps to control you know to to keep chain stores out and and you know the kinds of developments that that one wants in their downtown in so ownership is really quite quite critical. The second thing I would say is that there are many, many different kinds of legal vehicles that one could use for this. So 
a trust or a land trust. You could create a partnership. You could create a kind of mass stock company that is owned by a lot of different people. You could put it in the form of a traditional nonprofit. Um, you could create a co-op um, where the co-op owns every member of the co-op owns a small piece of the land, and so. The choice that you make for the legal structure will depend a lot on, you know, well, what are the interests of the people in the group? What kind of decision-making authority do they want? Uh, what's their need, if any, for a rate of return from their investment? So those are all good, easy problems to work through. Um, but it's just, you know, good to remind ourselves that many, many options exist. And just to kind of uh, give one interesting option. In um, Minnesota, there's something called the Northeast uh, Housing Cooperative, Investment Cooperative, uh, which uh, basically has created a co-op that allows co-op members to invest in low-income housing uh, for other members of the co-op. And it's a very creative use of the co-op structure which formerly might only have been done through, say, a land trust. So, so the, the third thing that I would say about this is that, you know, however one proceeds, it's really useful to kind of figure out a low-dollar, easy way of fulfilling the securities laws requirement that I talked about a few minutes ago. And... You know, really, there's sort of three pathways to doing this right now, uh, all of which are, are useful to talk about. So, so the first pathway is that, you know, for years and years, um, it has been possible uh, within any state in the United States um, to spend the $25,000, say, on legal fees and um, create a stock issue or some other ownership scheme could be within a co-op uh, so that lots of people can invest. And this is called a direct public offering because the company that does this legal work is offering shares directly to the public and then unaccredited investors um, can buy into it. And so um, these direct public offerings are becoming more and more common around the United States, but they're still kind of expensive, you know, $25,000 to do one. The next thing, the next option is what's called the Jobs Act. So two years ago, Congress passed and then President Obama signed a law that created a kind of streamlined process for federal crowdfunding, where anyone could go to a website and anyone could put up to $2,000 per company per year in, and the legal work involved in this would be very limited. Now, the problem with the JOBS Act is that uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission has to actually implement some regulations before this law can be used. They were supposed to have completed their homework by December of 2012, and here we are two years later, and they still haven't done it with no end in sight. So it's unclear what's happening with the JOBS Act. The third route, and, and this may be the most important route, is that states really angry that, that the federal government did not implement the JOBS Act have created their own 
state jobs act and more than a dozen states um, you know in some progressive states like Oregon and Washington and some conservative states like Georgia and Alabama have implemented these mini jobs act acts that make it you know really cheap and easy to do funding locally within the state of you know any given kind of company so I think that for many of your listeners, this third approach may well be the ticket to uh, how they are able to bring, you know, many small contributors into, you know, whatever this farming um, entity is, whether it's a co-op, nonprofit, land trust, etc. Well, in, um, so in France, which is where we found the model for Agrarian Trust, which is a group called Terre de Lien, which is it's actually a foundation that works in partnership with an investment vehicle that works in, in conjunction with a nonprofit. So it's like a, it's like a space station of different, of different organizational forms that are contract, contracted into each other. And they manage they managed to um, get most of their of their investment because the the federal government in France had created a kind of a community bond or a an incentive for savings um, for individual investors to get a little tax benefit for for participating in you know public interest um, vehicles for investment. Yes. And again, that's a socialist country that's working to incent certain behaviors. Um, savings is not something that I don't. I don't think that the U.S. government is as focused on people saving as they are in France. Maybe you could reflect on on what's different here in the U.S. or or what we could learn from that. Well, we we certainly can learn from that, and and I would say even closer to home, uh, a number of the provinces in Canada. Um, very creatively use tax credits uh, in order to support local investing. And I'll give you two examples. Uh, in the province of Manitoba, um, any investment in a qualified local, locally owned business uh, will get you a 30% tax credit from the province. So, so in other words, for every dollar you invest, you get 30 cents off of your provincial taxes. And in the province of Nova Scotia in 1998, they created a, um, a law that makes it very easy for groups of grassroots folks to create their own investment pools where they might put together, say, multiple loans to local businesses. And they also created a tax credit so that I think it's also about 30% to encourage people to put money into these funds. And just, um, you know, fast forward 16 years later, Nova Scotia has 50 of these funds. Most of them are focused on new farms or local food businesses. And if the United States had as many of these funds per capita as Nova Scotia does, we would have 17,000 of them. Um, So to me, it, it kind of underscores that this tax credit is a very, very powerful tool. Now, in the United States, we have all kinds of tax credits in both the federal 
and in, uh, and state level. But these credits largely are built around old-style economic development, which almost everyone acknowledges is a complete failure. And, for example, uh, I, I was... Um, where, I'm trying to remember the state. I was, I was recently in, in Louisiana uh, and, and discovered that they have a 30 or 35% tax credit for angel investors who put money in certain kinds of local business. In other words, the tax credit is only available to a, the 1% that is accredited investors, and no one else can use it. So, you know, that's an example of a kind of law that we have to tweak and reform so that the other 99% of us can take advantage of this as well. And once that's in place, then it'll be a lot easier to, to bring people into, you know, these kinds of farm, um, farm enterprise vehicles that we're talking about. Well, it's funny, yeah. Um, there's another interesting investment incentive for uh, Chinese citizens who are seeking residency in the United States if they invest, I think it's two or $300,000 into um, a new business in the United States and they can get citizenship. And a friend, I heard about it because a friend of mine got this amazing investment for her ginseng farm from a Chinese investor syndicate. Um, so that's a besides the point, but slightly scary. Um, right. So what right. did it take in order to set the framework? Um, we just had a really great lecture um, on Friday, which is going out on a video next week, um, from Eric Freifogel, who's been studying case law and natural resource law for 35 years, and he's a professor of law um, in Illinois. And, and he was suggesting that having a statutory approach um, to use rights for land is a very would be a very wise course of action and an acknowledgement um, an acknowledgement that local food security and community food security is a public good and that the use of land for that good um, you know supports the land use that we are trying to push our aim towards and the same way that the um, that the health community is often talking about we need a health bill instead of, or a food bill instead of a farm bill, um, in order to align our, our kind of federal policy priorities with mm -hmm. human health instead of with um, the lobby groups who have established themselves to, to, to eat off the common pool. And I wonder if you could give a little guidance about whether that would be a useful tool to set a kind of a, a land use goal in that way. I think it, I think it would be useful. Um, I think it's always helpful when public policy um, makes some pronouncements that says that you know these are favored uses of land or favored uses of property. Um, but of course, you want special treatment to be accorded to them if they are favored, and so that special treatment could be a tax credit or it could be. Um, some other kind of benefit, like maybe these enterprises have, you know, get lower tax rates generally, or they get, um, you know, specialty access to certain kinds of business support programs. So, so we want to make sure that these things have teeth on top of it. And I think, you know, 
framing it as food businesses rather than farm businesses is 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 very sen- sensible because what we've wound up with in you know every farm bill you know in recent memory is that these bills are entirely about protecting big farmers big agra rather than you know supporting family farmers and local food and so we've uh, a reframing is definitely in order um but i would also say that there is a lot that one can do with no legal changes at all. And that's why I, I pointed out that, you know, using these other available tools to kind of create either a direct public offering, at, you know, within a state using the old exemption or using one of these new laws is creating, you know, interesting pathways for groups of businesses to raise money for themselves uh, from unaccredited investors, and we should really support that. Then you laid out this list of tools um, in your writings, and you also send it along to me. And are we are we allowed to blog that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, okay, so that's so a, and that's a list of uh, twenty four local investment tools uh, that that I both write about on local dollars, local sense, and have been sort of looking at ever since and. It's everything from, you know, how to work with your uh, local bank and credit union and how to perhaps create a co-op uh, in support of your business, how to, how to set up land trusts, how to set up investment funds, how to create a local stock market, um, how, how to think about uh, your own personal finances as a way of localizing your investment. So, yeah, there's a lot of different tools on there, and um, I'd be happy for you to post it or happy to send it anyone, to anyone who uh, contacts me. Well, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, it's, it's funny how a, a generation of people who are building their own greenhouses and loading docks and restoring barns and reclaiming fields from forests and, you know, really inventing every aspect of that new farm enterprise when we get to the financial instruments and the legal instruments and the investment instruments. Um, uh, it's nice to see that there are many people who are inventing new instruments and adapting existing ones so that we can kind of hack together the tools that fit in our particular case. And I think emboldening this community of young farmers to take the time over winter, which is now, um, to learn about and research and talk on the phone with um, folks who are featured in your book and whose work has, you know, is increasingly documented online to, to poke holes at and problem solve and, and kind of case out, case out the viability of those, of those options for your business. Yeah, well, this is the last minute. Where where do you suggest um, that we use our our winter research time, which is very limited, um, to educate ourselves and and some guidance for that process? Well, I I would say you know I what I would always ask is what what is the business out there that I wish existed that would make my business easier. so it may be a land trust, but it may be a meat processing um, uh, company, or it may be a better transportation service to bring what I produce in the farm 
to restaurants or retailers or to homes, or it may be a better marketing device. But whatever those businesses are, think about ways that you could create that business working with other businesses and creating a co-op or some other partnership to make it happen. You know, I think there are, as much as I would, I often argue that smaller businesses, smaller farms, you know, they, they are much more competitive than people think. But nevertheless, it does sometimes help to get a larger scale. And there is no scale that a small local business cannot achieve if they get together with other similar businesses and collaborate. So there's a lot of power, I think, in what you're doing and your, the people that you speak to are doing in bringing farmers and other small food businesses together to work together and create these new companies. I agree. I agree. And there's so much value in the institution making as well. And, you know, sometimes people come into Young Farmer World and, and they think they want to be a farmer and they learn about farming and then they decide, well, maybe not. I'm actually more inclined to do other tasks. And this is a perfect task for them. <laughs> It's, yes. a perfect task. it's definitely a perfect task for me. So, Well, I hope I, um, I really thank you for joining us. This is the end of our time, and um, I am aware that there's many more questions that I would love to ask, and I wonder if you'd be willing to um, look over our shoulder as we are working on GitHub, which is an open-source platform usually used for creating code in an open-source way. Well, we're using that GitHub as a platform for creating the legal structure of the Agrarian Trust. Um, so I That's great. No, happy to help in any way I can, and let's definitely have some conversations in the future. Thank you, sir, and thank you to all of you. I want to remind everyone listening of the incredible series of events that are coming up. Obviously, Thanksgiving um, is on Thursday. And then we have our tour, GrangeFuture.net, is a community history exhibit celebrating the history and revival of the Grange idea. The Grange, as you know, is a fraternal organization from 1867 that became a social as well as political platform for farmers coping with the monopoly structures of the railroads and the grain consolidation. Um, the Grange lives on. It is America's oldest agricultural organization. And we, Greenhorns, are bringing an exhibit about the history of the Grange um, with oral histories from eight different regions in the United States, starting up in northern Mendocino County and all the way down to San Diego County um, as we do our first leg of this Grange Future Tour. Also, next weekend is December, let's see now, December 7th. Oh, Grumble, what is it? December 5th is... Farm Hack Mendocino with a focus on fuel ethanol made from the waste material of the wine grapes. Um, come and learn at the Ridgewood Ranch. More information at farmhack.net. Um, okay. Look forward to talking to everyone next week. So much coming on. Have a great winter. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.